Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. My name is Brendan, and I'm one of the pastors here at All Souls. Been here for 12 years now, and uh, shortly we'll be on sabbatical starting in June, middle of June, which is very exciting. Um, we are now in the sixth Sunday of the season of Easter. And so I wanted to ask or just pose a question to you as we begin to consider the scriptures that we heard this morning. And my question is this. Who is the story of the Bible about? Or rather, where is the story of the Bible aiming? What is it aiming for? Well, one of the things that I would like to suggest to you, and maybe you heard it as we listened, is that the story of the Bible is aimed at the nations from start to finish. And once you, once you see this, it is everywhere. You can't unsee it. So for example, our, our psalm reading this morning said, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. So for just a moment, I would like to take you through a very quick sort of flight through the Hebrew scriptures, and we're gonna just observe this theme of the nations. So our first stop is in Genesis chapters one and two. And these chapters catalog the opening act of God's creative work. And the thing I would like for you to notice is that when we get to the humans, Adam and Eve, they are not Jewish. Have you ever thought about that? Adam and Eve are not portrayed as Jewish. They are portrayed as the mother and the father of humanity. And so from the very beginning, we have humanity as a whole in view. In Genesis 12, after the text has mapped out for us all the peoples and nations of the known world, we are introduced to Abram, later to be named Abraham. And God's opening words to Abram are, I will bless you, and you are all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. So, I will bless you, and then all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. This is the logic of election. God works through the one for the sake of the many. Abraham's call is not about who is in and who is out, um, but is rather a call to responsibility, to steward the blessing of God to the nations. Now, I'm sorry, but I'm going to do you a really great disservice, and we are going to jump from Abraham all the way to Jesus, okay? That's a huge leap. I'm sorry, but I'm trying to be brief. Um, Jesus appeared in Israel, and Jesus fulfilled the vocation of Israel in himself. So, after his death and his resurrection, Jesus had the nations in view. 
So think of the Great Commission, which is found at the end of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus says to his disciples, go and make disciples of what? All nations. That's right. Our Gospel reading that we heard from John 14 this morning um, articulated Jesus' new way of being human and of reaching the nations. So his idea was that he was creating a body of people filled by the Spirit, and the Spirit would be their traveling companion and guide. And then he was going to send them from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth to the nations. The reading that we heard from Acts this morning is just one of those stops along the way during Paul's what we call missionary journeys. It's his second journey. And the Spirit is intimately involved in this um, journey with Paul. And Paul says that he was kept out of Asia by the Spirit. And then he had this dream of a man in Macedonia saying, come over here. And so the next day, they headed for Macedonia. And we see in the progression of the book of Acts, this working out of the church filled with the Spirit going in these concentric circles, wider and wider, wider with the nations in view. Last Sunday, we heard the remarkable, pivotal story of Peter and Cornelius. Now, Cornelius, you may remember, was a commander in the Roman army. And Peter, who was Peter? He was a fisherman from a small village of an oppressed people. If we really consider this story, I think we would find that it actually happens in the wrong direction. Like, in our imagination, it ought to be the Roman who brought the good news to the sort of fringe person, right, in this little nation, the oppressed people of, of Israel. What I would like to suggest is that is an empire way of thinking. And the, the irony of the American imagination is that we read stories in the Bible like these and we imagine ourselves as the oppressed minority heroes when actually most of us are more rightly imagined as the powerful Roman oppressors. So when you hear the words of Jesus, go and make disciples of all nations, I wonder what is in your imagination. And what I'm really wondering is, do you imagine the fulfilling of the Great Commission as an assimilative enterprise? If you imagine yourself as the hero, the one who is sent to the ends of the earth with the good news, if your, your imagination only runs in one direction, then you are likely held within an empire imagination. So during the time of Jesus, Rome imagined that it had a universal gift, the gift of peace that it was bringing to the world, the Pax Romano. But this gift came by way of the sword. It came through violence, one form of which was assimilation. 
When Columbus sailed the ocean blue, he came as the herald of an assimilative enterprise. The logic of colonialism generated an imagination, an imagination that did not blink when it said, kill the savage to save the man. This is the violence of empires at work. It is violence meted out through war, yes, but also through assimilation. Assimilation is violence. So I've become more and more convinced over the years that our imagination, our imagination is the most essential thing to get right as Christians. We need Christian imagination. Imagination that helps us to see the world the way God sees it. Imagination that can help us see the shalom, the wholeness, the healing, the peace that God intends for all humanity, for all the nations, and indeed for all creation. Now, our text from Revelation 21 today helps shape our imagination through one detail that you probably missed when you heard the reading. So I want to circle back to it. In it, uh, the text begins by describing the new Jerusalem that is coming down from heaven. This new Jerusalem, this city, is also described as a bride, and I think it is right for us to interpret it as the church. And one th the way that the church is described uh, go back to the very first slide. It says this, that the church is described as a precious jewel. Yeah. So the, it has the glory of God and a radiance like a very rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. Are any of you in here geologists? Anybody? Anybody? No geologists in the room. Okay. Well, this image that we're given is a contradiction. So the, the stone jasper is always an opaque and multicolored stone, okay? Opaque, multicolored. That means no light passes through it and it has lots of colors. But it's described as crystal clear jasper. So what is the text trying to communicate by calling the church crystal clear jasper? Or to phrase that another way, what does it mean for the bride to be both transparent and multicolored? So let's think about the word transparent first. I think we're meant to hear this image, in this image, Jesus' words, which are continue through the rest of the section in Revelation we heard about light and about life. You may remember Jesus said to his followers, I am the light of the world. And then he also turned around and said, you are the light of the world. And I would suggest to you that there is a transparency in the bride, in the church, such that Jesus' light shines clearly through her. His life flows unhindered through his bride to the world. But now let's think about the, the word multicolored. The church is also multicolored. 
She does not operate on the logic of assimilation. Just as Jesus himself preserves in his resurrected and ascended body distinctiveness. Remember, even now, Jesus is embodied as a Jewish first century man still bearing the scars of his crucifixion. So too, his body, the church, preserves all that is distinctive about the nations, language, culture, appearance, etc. The church is both transparent and multicolored. So I think it's appropriate to pause for just a moment. Hold on. Okay, I'm going to pause for just a moment. And let me remind you that this coming Tuesday is the second anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. Now, it would be so easy to stop remembering. It might be even more anathema to do the work of what I would call, or what Esau McCulley has called, connecting the dots. Do, anybody, do any of you know who Esau McCulley is? He's a black Anglican theologian. He wrote a book called Reading While Black. It's about how to read the scriptures from the vantage point of the African-American tradition. And he wrote a piece for The Atlantic this last week following the shooting in Buffalo. And this is how he, this is what he says. So just listen really carefully to this. Connections, he says, are anathema. We are forbidden to notice that black Americans were murdered while in search of sustenance. And Dylan Roof was fed Burger King after his racially motivated attack on a black church. We must deem it a coincidence that the black church, a key element of black communal life, was targeted by Roof in 2015 and the Ku Klux Klan during the height of the civil rights movement in 1963. We must turn our eyes from the fact that Gendron's wild claims about replacement theory are frighteningly similar to the you-will-not-replace-us chants that occurred in Charlottesville in 2017. He goes on and says, Peyton Gendron's actions must remain alone, disconnected from the recent history of racialized violence. He had nothing to do with that slaughter at Mother Emanuel in Charleston, South Carolina. He bears no relationship to the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd. He cannot be tied to the larger history of anti-blackness whose roots lie in the slave trade and later the lynching tree. Jim Crow, that ancient Southern terror, can have nothing to do with Northern Buffalo in 2022. It's dangerous to connect the dots. So in this brief pause, remember, couched within a consideration of assimilation as violence, I want you to hear these words from a South African bishop named Peter Story. And he says this, I've often suggested to American Christians that the only way to understand their mission is to ask what it might have meant to faithfully witness to Jesus in the heart of the Roman Empire. Imagine 
yourself, trying to be a faithful witness to Jesus under the belly of this massive empire. America's preachers have a task more difficult, he says, perhaps, than those faced by us under South Africa's apartheid, or by Christians under communism. We had obvious evils to engage. You have to expose and confront the great disconnect between the kindness, compassion, and caring of most American people and the ruthless way American power is experienced directly and indirectly by the poor of the earth. You have to help good people see how they have let their institutions do their sinning for them. That's pretty potent. If the church is to be truly herself, transparent and multicolored, what will that look like? And how will it be different than the empire ways that saturate our social imagination? And I am going to answer that question in part by reading to you just a brief um, section of my thesis paper that I just turned in for my uh, seminary degree. My paper was on, oh, I wasn't expecting that, but thank you. Um, my paper was on indigenous culture, spirituality, and Christian faith. And I do, as an aside, hope that I can take you all through it someday as a formation class. But listen to uh, the words of Willie Jennings and just this paragraph, and then I'll be done. Willie Jennings argues, and Willie Jennings is a, a, a really, really um, notable black theologian. He argues that our Christian birthright is to find ourselves inside the story of another people. Are any of you Jewish? Anybody in the room? No? So everybody here has found themselves inside the story of another people all of us. And it is our birthright to do this, to shape our understanding of Jesus from the inside of that story. And indeed, this has already happened for anyone of Christian faith who is not Jewish. We have all been grafted into a tree whose roots are not our own. We have all been adopted into a family that is not our biological one. We have all been given the gift of finding ourselves inside the story of another. However, because of our colonial history, we often approach this reality through an assimilative mindset. We can only imagine one of two options, okay? The first option, Finding myself inside the story of another people must inevitably mean loss for me. Or, I will take over the story of the other and remake it in my own image. Our imagination operates on the binary of loss or conquest. Loss or conquest. But as Jennings points out, this is a false dichotomy. Christian faith for anyone who is a Gentile, meaning you and me, anyone not of Jewish heritage, 
means we have already found ourselves inside the story of another. And in fact, this has been God's logic from the beginning, that every tribe would speak its own language, and therefore that all meaningful discourse would happen in translation between specific communities. Think about that. This was God's good idea that truth resides within languages and cultures and the only way it passes from one to another is through the work of translation. That is a long, slow, humble work of listening and learning. And I think in it is the logic of how God has intended that the church include the nations. A Christian's posture toward those we perceive as other or different must begin with this humility, this listening, long and hard. I call it compassionate curiosity. Yes, we must exercise this compassionate curiosity across all the divides of our times. Racism, political ideologies, immigration, public health, to the ends of the earth, right? But we begin this posture right here in the church. And this posture is framed in our hope of being a people of hospitality. And so let me just say a few words to us as a church. Coming out of this long season of COVID, we are having to remember what it means to be the church. And by remember, I literally mean re-member, put the body back together. And this is a moment when we are remembering the church. We have lived with a narrative for the past two years that has said, love your neighbor by staying away from them. And that was a loving response at the beginning of the pandemic. But the church cannot be a people whose motto is love your neighbor by staying away from them. Our hospitality muscles have atrophied, my friends. It is hard to do even simple acts of hospitality to one another. Every act of hospitality, my friends, every act of hospitality in our midst is the first step towards being the transparent and multicolored bride of Jesus that we are called to be. And I wanted to just say, to pick out a few people, like Garrett, Trent, who over the years has adopted that posture of radical hospitality by living in this neighborhood, starting what we call the Perkins House and choosing to learn from and be under the leadership of John Perkins, black civil rights leader and church leader. I'm gonna also pick on Tom and Lori who are here sitting in the front. Tom and Lori just recently relocated from New Mexico. And instead of coming and waiting for it to be noticed, Tom and Lori have jumped in and are among the first people that I see going up to new folks 
and making them feel welcome. Tom's been having breakfast with lots of different guys. Um, just embodying that posture of hospitality. And hospitality is the first step towards this movement that I believe we are called to as the church toward the nations. So will you pray with me, my friends? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.